Good morning, Knox family. Um, as I uh, deliver my final sermon for this church, um, just two things that I would be requesting. First, I would be asking for your grace in terms of the length of time for this sermon. Because <laughs> so I hope you won't mind. But even if you mind, I won't care because I'm leaving anyway. <laughs> Second, one of the things, you know, that, um, that I would be encouraging this church and that is that aspect of cultural diversity. That's one of my passions in ministry. And you know what really struck me when I came on board at Knox and that was the singing of hymns and songs in different languages. And that was for me so powerful that cultural diversity and, and cultural celebration is being done in this church. And so I think those, that might be the path that I would encourage the, the church to continue and celebrate continually how God gathers us as different nations. Well, speaking of cultures, there's one beautiful book um, that I would encourage you to read and that's uh, written by Jason Georges. It's entitled The 3D Gospel. It's a wonderful book. And Jason Georges spoke of, uh, the title of the book is 3D Gospel, Ministering in Fear, Shame, and Fear Cultures. What he's saying is that the gospel needs to be contextualized in specific cultures that is being spoken of and where it is being revealed to, whether it might be ethnic cultures or the culture of the community or whatever socioeconomic status perhaps of the people, then the gospel has to speak in that regard. And there are three key areas or three types of cultures that Chase and George has identified in this book of the 3D gospel. The first one is what he calls us that culture about guilt or innocence. And guilt or innocence could usually be found in cultures that are westernized, individualistic cultures. The second cultural type that he mentions would be the shame, honor culture. And usually that would be found in collectivist cultures, usually in Far East or in Asia or in, even in the Middle East. And so in this way, it's more of a collectivist way of looking at, at how culture is being celebrated. And the third one would be the fear power culture. And in that fear culture, usually that could be found in animistic cultures. But if what's interesting about these three cultural types that Chase and George has identified is this, that the gospel really speaks of these three areas of culture types. If we speak, for example, of uh, uh, innocence and guilt, well, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, our guilt, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So it's more of an individualistic gospel pronouncement. In terms of shame and honor, well, Romans 10, 11 says, for everyone who believes will not be shamed or will not be ashamed. Interestingly, the Bible speaks of that in that context. And speaking of fear and power cultures, well, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, For we have not been given the spirit of fear, but power and love and compassion. Now, if you would notice that the gospel really speaks among these three cultural types, while it might be so, in a way, oversimplification, but in a way, this would be a good framework, a good mindset as well, a good perspective in understanding cultures, and at the same time on how the gospel will be presented in specific cultures as well. And the reason why I would like uh, to, to use that 
framework, particularly ownership cultures, is because that would be one of the best tools for us to use in analyzing and assessing and even getting scripture and, and the value of scripture from what we have read a while ago in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. And so what I would be encouraging from you, friends, would be if you could get your Bibles, physical Bibles. If not, then you could use your cell phones. If you have your uh, uh, Bible apps, because I'd like us to go through this, not, not on a verse-per-verse verse basis, but just so that we would be able to follow through. So if you're taking your cell phones with you and you're texting while I'm preaching, I don't mind. Okay? So this might be the first time that you could text while somebody's preaching. But John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. So it's a little bit of a, a long text, but we would be going through this um, in, in a way because of the fact that God has really led us into this space of talking about cultures. And when we read the story of Samaritan woman, and that's, that's a sort of a powerful and common story for us, really a popular story about how God brought the gospel to this village and to this woman. And the best way to understand the dilemma of the Samaritan woman and how she was able to receive the gospel would be to look at that from the lens of honor-shame cultures. Why shame? Well, two key points before we go through with our text. In verse 9, in verse 9, there's, there's this powerful text that says, And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Samaritans don't have any dealings with the Jews. Now you might be wondering why that's the case. But let me provide you with this uh, historical preview of why that is a source of shame for the Samaritan woman and for all Samaritans for that matter. In, 1970, uh, in sorry, 975 BC, when Solomon passed away, when Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was split into two. The northern kingdom and its capital is Samaria. And then the southern kingdom and the capital is Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem. And interestingly, both of those nations were split because of the corruption and oppression and the fact that these people have not served God well. And so God split the kingdom. In 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. And with that, they exiled the majority of the people in the northern kingdom. And for those people, never to return again. But the policy of the Assyrians was this, that they repopulated the northern kingdom, or it's called later on Samaria as the whole northern kingdom. They repopulated it with foreigners. And so gradually, the remaining Jews, the remnants, began to worship the gods of these foreigners. And there was also intermarriage. So there was shame in this regard because the Samaritans are considered really a second-class citizens or second-class people by the Jews. They're, they're, they're half-breeds. So for this woman, she was experiencing the shame when she said that in, in verse 9, how come you're talking to me? You are Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How, how could that be? Because the fact is they were just considered as half-breeds or second-class citizens in Israel. So that's a source of shame for Samaritans. But secondly, in 600 BC, the southern kingdom fell, and majority of the, of, of the population of the southern kingdom was exiled as well. And that's where you would be 
hearing of the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, because it was captured by the Babylonians. Seventy years later, however, the Persians were able to defeat the Babylonians. And one of the policies of the Aramaid king, kings or the Persian kings was that they allowed people to return. And around 45,000 Jews returned to the southern kingdom to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. That's where you would get the story of Esther and the story of Ezra and the story of Nehemiah. That's where you could textualize that story. The story tells us of the fact that there is this shame among Samaritans because of that. In fact, during the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, there was significant opposition from the Samaritans because they don't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt again. And so there was this historical enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. It was for centuries. There was this conflict, and even until the time of Jesus. So there's this shame in this context. How could you be honored when, in fact, you are just second-class citizens? You're just, you're just half-breeds. But interestingly, you know what I've discovered? That among these people who are marginalized and discriminated, Jesus was the one who lifted them up and gave them honor. I mean, just read the story of the Good Samaritan, of what it means to be a good neighbor. It was the story of a, of a Samaritan person who, who did good rather than the Jews, rather than the religious people. It was the Good Samaritan. But the second shame for this woman would be found in verse 16 to 18 of our text. In verse 16 to 18, you would, you would notice this, this significant way of what's being told. He told her, Jesus said, go call your husband and come back. And I have no husband. She replied. And Jesus said, you are right when you said you don't have a husband. In fact, you have had five husbands. And the person that you're living with right now is not even your husband. That's shame. That's really shame. And, and so for this Samaritan woman, it was really a double whammy. A double whammy in terms of, of shame of being a Samaritan and at the same time, shame of her immoral life. I mean, what, what, more, what, what kind of marginality would you more experience than, than being ashamed twice? But interestingly, what, how God approached the Samaritan, how Jesus approached the Samaritan woman was not in a judgmental way, but in a kind way. It's interesting how Jesus just reached out to people who are in the margins in that regard. But you see, if you, even if you go back again to verse 9, or sorry, verse 6, one of the reasons why for that woman she really feels that shame is because in that, in, in that verse 6, she came to the well on the sixth hour. And, and you might be wondering why the sixth hour? Well, it's noontime. Well, the reason why she came there during noontime is because there's no other people there. There are no villagers. Because if there are villagers there, then she would be ashamed. She would be judged. She would even be condemned with, with her lifestyle, with her way of life. And so she, she went there. And so, I, I mean, just put yourselves in the place of that woman. I have been living this kind of life for years. Living with five husbands. I don't know what happened to those five husbands. But now she's living with someone who is not even married to, to, to her. And so there's this strong shame. And if I'm that person, I, I, would, not, I would not go with, with other people. I would not talk to them. I would be isolating myself. And I would just go there to the well during noontime. Because in there I could be free and getting that water. 
But interestingly, it was in that moment that she met Jesus. In her moment of shame, in her moment of marginality, in her moment of discrimination, she met Jesus and everything changed. You know what happened? There was this status reversal that from shame she was able to experience honor. Could you imagine? And this is what really God does to us. And this is how Jesus loves us. Because in the, even in the midst of shame in our lives, whatever you do, when you confess your sins and when you bring everything to him, then there's this status reversal. That from shame, he gives you honor. He gives you place in his kingdom. He gives you value that no other people can give. Society is just so judgmental, you know. But for Jesus, it's a different story. Everyone whom Jesus said uh, and Jesus met, their lives were changed. If you look at the whole of the Gospels, the four Gospels, for everyone whom Jesus met, there was really the change of lives, that there was, no, that, that there was dignity and value of, of being a follower of Jesus. And so we would be continuing with that. So how do we approach that then? As Christians, now that we are in the kingdom, how can we follow Jesus' way? How can we be a missional church? How can we invite people to Jesus? How can we make it effective so that people can hear of the gospel through the ways that we invite them to Jesus? And so this would be the four journeys that we would be taking today uh, as we read scripture in uh, chapter 4 of, uh, of John. The first way that God is calling us to be a missional church and for people to be invited to Jesus would be this, that we need to establish intentional relationships. Verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Have you, have you thought of that? This is just in passing, by the way. It's just, it's a simple phrase. Now he had to go through Samaria. You, you know what you would be discovering in reading this text? Because in a way, when Jesus was about to go, I think from, from, uh, from Judea to, to Galilee, he was not supposed to be going there, but he had to. That means that it was his intention to go through Samaria. It was his intention, and he knew that he would be meeting this woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. This, my friends, would be building intentional relationships. He had to go through Samaria. And I think when we ask ourselves that, I think the same question that we would have to ask ourselves. When God is calling you somewhere, there has to be that reason and intention of why God has called you there. And even with the way that we minister to people, is there that intentionality that happens with the way that we approach people? If you look at the life of Jesus, he is always with people who are marginalized, people on the streets, people who are sinners. And I do believe, it was it last week that we spoke about the tax collector? I think Pastor uh, Reverend Alex preached about that. And Reverend Nick preached about uh, the bread of life, something about right? <laughs> but could you imagine he saw even the tax collector on top of the tree and intentionally he called that man so that he could be in his home. You see, one of the beautiful things about what Jesus does is that 
he, there, there's always this intentionality in everything that he does. And I think that's the same question that we need to ask ourselves and the same intentionality that we need to have. Are we intentional with the way that we approach people? Are we intentional with the way that we talk to them, with the way that we have conversations? Are we only having conversations with people that we are comfortable with? Are we only having conversations with people and meeting people who are of the same socioeconomic status as we have? But for Jesus, it's a totally different story. Wherever those people who are in the margins, that's where he goes with intentionality. They that are whole do not need a physician, but those who are sick. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, where are the sick people in this world? Yes, definitely there might be people inside this church who are sick, emotionally and spiritually, but there's darkness in that world, and that is where God is calling us to do missions. And there has to be that intentionality. Eric Law, Reverend Dr. Eric Law, uh, he, we invited him, I think, two years ago um, to speak and to do workshop on cultural sensitivity for the Board of Elders and the other leaders of the church. And he has this wonderful book on multicultural uh, celebrations and diversity. And he has this diagram that he mentions about two things with the way that we need to change the way that we serve and we do missions. The first circle is what he calls as the safe zone. It's a zone of comfort. It's a zone where it's, it's a matter of institutional protection. It's a matter of comfort that we don't need to do anything there. We, it, it's called a holy huddle in a way because we don't need to change. People there in that safe zone speak our language. People in that, in that zone even belongs to our same cultures. And so there's no need for change. But for Eric Loy said, the gospel calls us to break the boundary of that safe zone to reach that gray zone. It's a zone of compassion. It's a zone that speaks about love and care and even sacrifice. It's not about the holy huddle. It's about moving beyond what is comfortable to us. And be there, being dirty, and speaking of people who are not even like us, not of the same color as us, not of the same socioeconomic status as us, different ethnicity, different cultures, different language. That is the space that God is calling us, that grace zone. And I think that's the same question that we need to ask ourselves as well in all our ministries. How, how, how do we do that individually and even collectively as a church? How can we break the boundaries from safe zone towards, towards being a gray zone? That is the calling for us today. And that is there is a need for us to, have, to be intentional in our relationship, to, to really establish intentional relationships. Secondly, in verses 10 to 14, in verses 10 to 14. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that you ask for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water from. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us a well and drank from itself? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from me will never be thirsty. This is the living water. And you know what struck me about that verses? The way that Jesus approached the woman, it has no judgment whatsoever. There was no judgment. It was an act of compassion. It was an act of care. It was an act of gentleness. So what does this mean, secondly, to be a missional church? Well, we are being called to build relational bridges that honor people. We need to build 
relational bridges that honor people. We do not just need to be intentional in our relationship building, but we need to build relationships that honor people or relational bridges. I got this term from Jason Georges and Mark, uh, Mark Baker in their follow-up book on ministering in honor-shame cultures. And they said, this is one of the things that we need to do in this kind of context. Build relational bridges that honor people. And how do we do that? Well, talking to people without any judgment, without any condemnation, but love. Because that's how we attract people. We attract people through the ways that we behave, through the ways that we act, without any judgment, without any condemnation, but just care and compassion and love. How, how, how can you look at people with compassion in your eyes? That even in the midst of their struggle, however bad and filthy or wrong they are before God, yet you could see them from the eyes of Jesus. That's relational bridges that honors people. And I hope that we would be in that space as well. That when we preach the gospel through our lives and actions and words, there's always that gentleness and care and love. Thirdly, one of the things that God is asking of us would be in verses 28 to 30. Chapter 4, verses 28 to 30. Then leaving her water jar, the one woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out to the town and made their way toward Jesus. Look at the life of this woman. She was just so ashamed before. Ashamed of even going out during, during regular, I don't know, not office hours, but during regular time that you get water. But she goes there during noontime because she is so ashamed. But from the moment she met Jesus and there was this, uh, this status reversal, everything changed. She was not ashamed of going to the community anymore. I mean, she was not even ashamed of, of telling people who, what she did. And she said, this, this man knew me. This man knew my, my, my sinfulness. This man knew that I'm living in sin. Could you imagine if you're in that kind of situation and you're, you're living an immoral life and then you go to this judgmental community without any fear at all, without any shame at all. Why? Because you met Jesus who had given you new life and given you value. You see, when, when we meet Jesus, everything changes, even the way that we look at ourselves. Yes, definitely we accept our sinfulness, but in that same manner as well, we see also the value that God has given in us. And that value of being able to share our story. This would be the third aspect of what it means to be a missional community. You share your story. A story of redemption, a story of change, a story of transformation. I mean, in all the parables that Jesus mentioned about, about the treasure of the kingdom, he said that if you have been able to discover this treasure, you could not do otherwise but share what you have discovered. That's the gospel. It's treasure. And you could not make a point of just say, saying silent. But sadly, this is the problem of why the church is declining nowadays. Because we are just so ashamed of sharing the transformation that occurred in our lives. 
We, we, we want our lives to be more private rather than public. We want to just stay in our own comfort zone, our safe zone, rather than go to that gray zone and tell people and be a fool for Jesus and sharing that gospel. You could not stop but share your story. That is the requirement and that is the demand of God for you. You need to share your story. And what more story that you could hear than the story of transformation? And you know, when people hear of the lives that have been changed, your life that has been changed, people will listen. I pray that we would be in that space of sharing that story of what God has done in our lives. And so first, we, we, we need to establish intentional relationships. And second, in verses 10 to 14, we need to build relational bridges that honor people. And third, in verses 28 to 30, we need to share our story, a story of relationship, a story of how God transformed us. But fourth, and this is one of the most important things of all, in verses 39 to 42. In verses 39 to 42. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of, what the, wom- uh, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Because of the testimony of the woman, many became believers. You see, the whole village, the whole community, the whole Samaritan village turned to Jesus. What does it mean for us to be a missional church? Well, we need to form a relational community. To be believers of Jesus, this is not an individualistic and individualized faith. It's about that is collective. It's about a faith that belongs to that body of Christ. You could never be a separate individual, a separate Christian from outside of the body of Christ. Faith could never be individualized. It has to be in the context of a family. It has to be in the context of community. Uh, Michael Green, in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, said that you know why the early church was so effective in their presentation of the gospel? It was, they were, it was because they were using the oikos principle. And what's the oikos principle? Well, oikos means household, by the way. And it's mentioned 106 times in the New Testament alone. And, and you know what? What's amazing about that word? If, how, if oikos might refer just to household, but God actually enlarged that beyond that aspect of a nuclear family or uh, extended family. In fact, according to scripture, it now encompasses the whole of God's kingdom or those who believe in Jesus Christ. Oikos principle means that you preach the gospel among the believers in your household or among the people in your household, your, your children, your spouses. Remember the story of Cornelius, the centurion in Acts chapter 10? He was the one who was in fear of God and his whole family was baptized. And that's how the early church grew. And I do believe, my friends, that if we want to be missional, start first with your own households. Start first with 
with the people who are there in your house and be a witness to them. Give your testimony about a changed life in that, in that household. But Tom Reiner, uh, a, a church health guru, said that we need to go beyond that even. He said that there are four oikos or four areas that we need to consider when it comes to considering household as the basis of our evangelism and as the basis of our mission. First would be what he calls as the biological oikos. By biological, it means by blood or people who have been in affinity with you because of marriage. That's biological. Second would be vocational, and that means people whom you work with. And by the way, you spend a lot of time among people whom you work with, more than the time that you spend among your family members, by the way. And third would be geographical, oikos. And by geographical, this would be your community, this would be your neighbors, this would be the people in your immediate community. Be that oikos. And fourth, volitional oikos. By vocation, volitional, it means that it is an oikos, it is a household by choice. Your choice, the people that you would like to make to become part of your family and your community. Your presentation of the gospel, your evangelism, your mission should not only be biological, it should be vocational, it should be geographical, and it should be volitional. And I hope that in all these spaces, we would preach the gospel and our lives would bring glory to God. Let me, let me conclude with these uh, two illustrations. There are two ways of inviting people to Jesus. The first one is what I call a traditional way. Traditional because that has, that has been such a sort of a problematic uh, uh, thing anyway. And the second one would be Jesus' way according to, the, to the, uh, John chapter 4. The first traditional one would be inviting people by asking them to behave, to believe, and to belong. That gospel call, do we have a slide on that? That gospel call starts with people whom we require first to change their lives. Be good first. And then when they're good, we invite them to believe. And then we invite them into our community. But Jesus' way is different. Jesus' way starts with belong, believe, and become. It's a totally different way. It's relational. It's really a call for people to become first and establish that relationship first. Only then can you present to them the gospel and then their lives would be changed through the work of the Holy Spirit. I pray that that would be the direction that we would take in our ministry and in our mission as a church. Build relationships. Call people into that relationship and from there reveal, talk to them about your life, your testimony of how your lives were changed. And I hope that you would, you would be in that state. And that would be my encouragement to you, friends. In whatever oikos, whatever groups, I pray that you would go beyond that safe zone, beyond that holy huddle, and become really spaces of grace so that people will be invited through that relationship that you have built through them. And so as, we, uh, as, as I, I conclude this sermon today, just a question for you to reflect on. And a message that I would like for you to think of. How do you transform your oikos into grace communities? I'm asking for you to consider that question today. How can you transform your oikos, whether it might be your household or your, or your community? Or your vocational places? I pray 
that as we move forward and even as God calls me into a new ministry space, I pray that this would be a home where God is worshipped and where mission is being done. Friends, you are our family. And wherever we go, I pray that we would have a home here at Knox. Blessings, everyone.